Good evening, Mr. White. Good evening, Mr. Kerrigan. And welcome to episode 12 of the Broken Home Podcast. And for the second time, we've got a guest. Yes, we do. Quite the guest, actually. Let me tell you a little bit about her. About three weeks ago, I was in my truck listening to the radio on the CBC. And at around 4 p.m., I I tuned in. And this particular story, it it caught me so off guard. I basically put everything on hold just to tune in for this 15 minutes. And how this story affected me actually put me into full-blown stalker mode. I found this lady's name got on the computer and I started Googling her name, trying to figure out how I can get in touch with her. Google brought absolutely nothing. So I went on the CBC website and I tried to get a hold of the host of the segment. I didn't get a reply back from her. A couple days later, I tried getting a hold of the CBC themselves to see if they could put me in touch with someone who could put me in touch with this particular woman as well. I didn't get no reply. And because I'm still fairly new to social media, I have a Facebook account, but I only have it for one reason, and that's for I needed it to be able to log into my virtual reality headset. Other than that, I don't touch it. But for once, Facebook came in handy. (laughs) I went on Facebook, and I typed in her name. And lo and behold, I found one person with this name. So I just took a shot in the dark. And I messaged her, hoping it was her. And sure enough, I got a reply back. And uh, I just explained to her basically how I I was so touched by her story. And I knew how she felt. Darlene spent 18 years of her life in the child welfare system. So I invited her to be a guest on the podcast today. Her name is Darlene Keeper. Welcome, Darlene. Hey, Darlene. Um, I would like to first introduce myself traditionally. Buju, Mashkowice, Nundagilzian, Nindijinikaz, Nim. So, hello. My name is Strong Voice, and my English name is Darlene Keeper. So, thank you so much for having me here. I was really hesitant to speak about my past, but I realized that this is beyond digging into my history. This is more so bringing awareness to the harms that we experience as children in the welfare system and um, recognizing that the moments in my life helped shift the narrative, meaning the narrative of what I was told to be or who to be or even how to be. I took back my power by being me and doing what I believed was a good path, which is a path of healing, forgiveness, self-enlightenment and acceptance to get to a point where I can believe that no matter what harms were done, that if I'm courageous enough that I can fight through that fear because I believe in myself. And ultimately, that's where it starts, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and Darlene, for you to come out and to share your story on such a big platform as the CBC, I could not stress how brave you are. You know what's kind it's, of funny about that? What's that? Is that <laughs> I had no clue in the moment what CBC was or the or the breadth of the interview but now I do so (laughs) yeah how did that get set up like how did how did Um, they uh contact you so I'm I have this uh like support group for former youth in care now this year is like a new thing that I joined um for university students and one of our mentors she had uh, asked if any of us would be interested in speaking about our our experience in the child welfare system. And so that's how that came about. But I saw CBC written in the email, but I just had no idea. (laughs) I had no (laughs) idea what it was. Um, I watched the news occasionally, but still, I I don't know. Maybe it was just a slow moment in the brain that day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm so happy that you did it or else uh, we wouldn't have been able to get in touch with you. We wouldn't have heard your story. And your story is one 
of potentially millions, just one voice that have gone through similar situations that you have. Unfortunately, a lot haven't lived to tell the story, be that their own means or at the hands of somebody else. And it's absolutely heartbreaking to even fathom how many other voices aren't being heard. It was almost like a calling, Darlene. I had to get your voice heard, even just to do my part, just to say that I'm trying to do as much as I can here to help. So thank you for giving us your time today. Yes, yeah. of course. Thank you so much. Starting from the, the beginning, how old were you uh, when you were put into the system? Six months of age is the first case file. And then from there, it was apprehension and then reunification apprehension and back and forth many times uh, up until my ninth birthday where the house fire happened and then at that point we me and my siblings became permanent wards of the system for any of our listeners that aren't aware uh temporary is a situation where you can be reunified with your mother as opposed to permanent ward where you are legally a child of the ward until you are 18 years of age. Wow. Why don't you share your story basically from when you were a kid? What can you remember as a kid growing up? My memories become less and less the younger that I was, but I do remember significant events, of course, or I guess you can say traumatic events. Many are vague and the further away they are the more fractured they become so like i i have snippets here and there but not not enough to really really understand the full breadth of what was going on Um, i guess what i do remember i can start from there i have many memories of being in foster homes but none of them are good i believe i was maybe three years of age and i remember being locked in a basement all day like from morning until like the sun went down because I remember the basement getting dark and like they wouldn't turn on the lights so I was like by myself in the basement and I would like hide under the sheets when it got dark all I have really are negative things and the Mm. positive things that I do remember uh, were from like the temporary placements emergency placements like where I would be in a home for 24 to 48 hours like I remember feeling in a safe space and then being removed shortly after and then being put into another home where it was more long-term. And that's where I feel I've, I experienced significant trauma. And this like kind of brings me back to another memory too. All, all of my ages here are kind of guesstimates because I can't pin tell when exactly they occurred, but mm-hmm. mm, yeah, I think I was like six or seven in one, one placement. And one night I had a nightmare and I went into the foster mom's room to let her know that I was scared and I needed some comforting and she grabbed my back with her long nails and like squeezed really tight and scared me and she's like don't ever scare me like that again you're lucky I didn't rip your skin off or something like that you know and just just those kind of things or another time there was dirty underwear and she put it on my head because she thinks that it was me but I remember telling her like no that's not me and so she put me on a little step stool in front of her and her own children and made put this underwear on my head and they all laughed at me and mocked me for however long and I had wow. to stand like that for hours. Deliberately humiliated you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then so really that's all I can remember before that. Yeah. And my I mean on my ninth birthday the house fire occurred during this time my mother was drinking alcohol. She was feeling suicidal. However, the events transpired, she couldn't find like her cigarettes and then thought that I was hiding them on her. And then she said that I don't love her. However, that came about, then she decided she wanted to set the house on fire and keep herself in there. And so she dumped the bucket of water in my flying remote community. The pipes freeze sometimes because a lot of us well, we just don't have the infrastructure that you would think that we would have elsewhere. Um, yeah, so especially dumped- in this day and age. Exactly. And then so <laughs> she dumped the, all the buckets of water we had in the home. And then she went to the bathroom to flush the toilet to also get rid of that liquid. Because ever since as a kid, like I, I, I guess you could say I was wise enough to always, you know, be able to 
try to solve problems. So like, obviously, I would try to pour water on it, you know, things like that. Yeah. So she did that. She was trying to put her jacket on top of the stove. And I was trying to fight with my mother, like not physically, but like fight with my mother to try and grab the blankets. So then she threw it into the oven. And then she blocked me away from it. And then so at that point, she said, get out of here, take your siblings and go to CFS. I specifically remember her telling me that. And as a kid, I was stubborn when I wanted things to be done a different way. And I didn't want to be going running to CFS at that time. I wanted to try and collect as many of my personal items. Or I would guess I wouldn't even say personal items because I, it's kind of funny as a child. I mean, I was looking for you know, basic necessities at that time. At nine years old, I was trying to load up as many cans of food as I could on, the, on my sled. Wow. I grabbed a blanket. But when I look back at this time, I like I really wish that I had grabbed more monumental items, like, you know, my family photos and just like significant things that as an adult, I kind of wish I did. But I remember finally going out because many of the walls had already erupted into flames. And by then the RCMP had showed up, CFS. I, I don't recall who was holding me back, but I kept trying to go back towards the fire to go get my mom. And then I managed to wriggle out of whoever's arms I was in and ran towards my house. And at that time, my mom was just coming out of the door and I, and I witnessed the, the window shatter from the heat. So wow. I tried to hold on to my mom as tight as I could. Uh, the RCMP were handcuffing her. And then I was placed in the group home across the lake. I got to watch the rest of my house burn to ashes. Wow. Across the lake. Wow. Although, even though you did leave things like family pictures behind at that age, I got to say, I mean, you went into full, like, survival mode. Like an adult. Yeah. Like, get a bug out bag with, like, cans of food and stuff like that. It's it's crazy. And I got my sneaker. (laughs) I have a feeling that you had to grow up and pretty much be the adult of the home at nine years old. Yeah, I mean, when my mom, you know, resort to drinking and somebody had to take care of my siblings. So my yeah. brother and I collectively worked together to, to do that. Uh, he's a year younger than me. So the both of us did what we had to do. And I guess yeah. that kind of made us more mature and, and more adult-like, like in grabbing food and blankets. Like, of our toys. Yeah. So was there a CFS location right in your community? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's okay. Within walking distance. Like, it probably would have taken 15 minutes to walk there. I oh, think. I see. So, the next memory is something that I learned maybe three years ago. I was reading um, in one of my case files about writing a, a note stating that I wanted to kill myself. And that's how I ended up at the mental health uh, institution in Winnipeg here. Uh, At the time, I thought that they were just placing me somewhere temporarily and they didn't have anywhere else to put me. So I was there. And I guess they wouldn't really fill you in on anything that's happening. You're just kind of being dragged along like luggage, I would imagine. (laughs) Literally. I met some women there. I, I was nine. So like, I think I can't really confirm if they were adults or not, but they were older. Like I would say 17, at least 18. I'm not quite sure, but. One woman had cuts on every inch of her body, neck, face, body, every single part you can imagine she had cut. Another woman, all I remember is is her curly hair. She would tell me to be careful because there's spiders all over the walls. And like she would scream and I don't know, maybe if she was schizophrenic or not. I'm not quite sure what sort of, I don't know how to describe. I'm not sure what she was experiencing, but some you know, hallucinations to, to, yeah to 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 paint that picture for me it was very traumatizing um yeah and, and you're how old at that point nine so nine years old and and you're in like a horror movie this is like <laughs> literally yeah shutter island just yeah thrown in with crazies and when you're apprehended after something of this scale you you don't have any contact with your siblings with your mother with anybody that you really knew before, except for this new worker that's assigned to you. They, they isolate you like that? 
that's how it is. I mean, I feel like there's so many hoops that you have to jump through just to connect with your people. I mean, nowadays it's a, it's a little bit easier, but I, I also still feel like it's, you need permission to contact your sister, your brother. And I understand a lot of the, the reasoning behind it, but I also experienced the, the detriment of doing that. I was scared. I mean, I just wanted to talk yeah. to my family, <laughs> but you can't. And alone. Yeah. Were you ever in the city before this? So, so the memories of the homes that I have, like I think maybe some country towns. I think, well, yes, one home was in the city. Uh, I remember I remember that home. I had a visit with my mother. I had a tendency to run away back to my mother right after the visit was over. And so this one winter, I was put to bed after my visit at my, at my foster home. And I snuck out of the window in my pajamas and I, I walked right back to where I had a visit with my mother because I, I thought that she would still be there, that I thought that's where she lived. But, uh, wow. you know, that's just where we had our visits. And so she obviously she was already long gone. Yeah. You know, that's another time I walked all the way to the agency, which is downtown. It was like a long, a long walk away from where I was living. But for some reason, I always knew how to get to where I wanted to go. <laughs> <laughs> you had that little GPS in you. <laughs> yeah, my must be my indigeneity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> do, do you know, uh, like, an estimation of how many homes, temporary, and all, that that you went back and forth from? I can't truthfully answer that because the only memories I have of homes are the ones that were traumatic. So, I mean, I could have been shuffled in many homes that were good, but they just weren't memorable enough for me to really remember them, especially at this age. But yeah. for sure, more than 10, it could even be 20, 30. I'm not even sure. Like, I, it's hard to say. I just know that there were many times I was moved around and then back to my mother and wherever yeah. my mother was and to different homes. And I remember being placed with my mom and my siblings in a treatment center. We'd be there for about two months. And then she would have all of these supports. At that time, she was doing well. She would graduate from the program. And then she would be put on her own with five kids. And then for me, I kind of feel like that's a failure on the system as well. You, you support somebody for two months that needs a lifetime of you know, support that also experience, you know, their own trauma as well. And they leave yeah. you on your own to watch five children that are all very young. Huge undertaking. Yeah, exactly. that's, that's setting somebody up for failure. Exactly. And why do you, and you mentioned that the temporary places that you went to were a lot better and you felt a lot safer than the, the long-term places. Now, looking back in hindsight, do you, do you have like an idea of what the difference is, why those temporary places were better than long-term places? Like were people that were long-term, were they more jaded? from you know maybe doing this for so long or, or... I, I think that it was because when you're in a long-term placement they want you to conform in, into their idea of, of a routine of what's normal uh, you know and, uh yeah and if you you're gotta not fit the and mold. It, exactly and if you're not conforming to it then you're you're a problem child you're the problem because you because you don't know the skills or social skills to accomplish what they expect of you and then they're negative towards you because of that and then mm -hmm. obviously as a child you, you sense this and then you kind of resent them more and then you let's say you don't want to listen to something or another situation is that where you do have like abuse of foster parents I don't know what their problem is they maybe they thrive off of the power of having yeah. control over a child that that's not their own I'm not quite sure but um and for the temporary placements, their agenda wasn't conforming the child. You know, their, their agenda was comforting the child in that transition of apprehension to permanent placements. You yeah, I mean? so they would, yeah, they would be doing their job, offering the comfort, trying to provide the love because they understand the dire situation that these children are in. And they're, and, and they're assuming the, the long-term parents are just as caring and just as loving but it sounds like that's not always the case yeah that, that, that kind of brings me into something else that I wanted to share about bringing more awareness to this issue is that understanding that these children in, in care are more than just a number 
or even the stigma that society has created about who these children are, when in actuality, this is what the byproduct of the system is that was created for them. I mean, the, the intent may have been good, but the reality is it, it did not transpire in that way. Yeah. Um, one thing that, that I'm trying to advocate for is to have a, a separate support group for these children to have that comforting, you know, beyond that temporary moment so that you can separate somebody that is trying to instill your daily routine and then as well having somebody that can comfort you in this moment. Yeah. Because you, you see these children, I mean, I know like my experience as well, I was, I was hurting and to be placed into a home that you're being forced to to learn the ways of, of something that you are not familiar with. Especially yeah. being for, after being forcibly removed from your home, it's like we're it's like we're trying to teach the children to listen to a stranger who knows nothing about them <laughs> and tells them what to do, and they're expected to be o- obedient based solely on the fact that they're a child. I mean, yeah. But what do you think? But this is going to turn into as an adult, right? Yeah. Yeah. You go through all of that, and then you go to the next place. Now you got to conform to their ways. Exactly. And. How many times does anybody ever ask the child? Like, yeah. Is there any follow up? Like, like, does anyone ever follow up once you're in a a long term home? Like, any kind of counselor or or anything that checks on your well being? Or is it just something that they'll ask, like, the family, how's everything going? And, you know, just kind of take their word for it. The social worker, the legal guardian of a child, I mean, visits a child once a month if you're lucky. Me in my experience, I I think I saw my social worker once a year. Wow! If if that, I mean, I feel like there are so many segments in my life where I almost didn't see them. Like every other year, kind of, it almost feels like it was just kind of non-existent. And then, you know, I was reading something the other day about social workers disclosing their difficulty getting information from the children. And trying to get them to speak up a little bit, but it's like, how do you expect a child to want to speak to you when you when you remove them from the home and then you don't connect with them? You should almost be there every day trying to console with the child and let them understand what's going on a little bit yeah. more instead of abandoning them. You know, like, yeah. You you apprehend a child based on the idea that they're being neglectful. You just turn around and then you do the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah, you are the source of that child's pain in their eyes. Yeah. I think it was around end of February. I remember being told that that they found a home for me. And then so I met with this family who picked me up at KFC. And so I was like, oh, wow, like so awesome. Because like on the reserve, we don't have KFC. And, you know, (laughs) oh, my God, this is so awesome. And then so they picked me up, brought me to their home. And I was like, oh, wow, this is so nice a lot different than what I had experienced especially being in the hospital however that first year was I remember I was enrolled in a private catholic school wore a uniform so at least you know I didn't have to worry about wearing the cool clothes or anything but um yeah (laughs) my first memory in that home at 11 years old was the first time I ran away and why I did that is because I used to have like a respite visits with this woman like every I don't know how often but on the weekends I just, I felt more safe in this respite home, you know, because I, I obviously was not safe in the other home for many reasons, but um, she betrayed me and she called my foster parents and told them that I was there. And then they came and picked me up and brought me back to their house. And, you know, I was like terrified. I was in my bunk bed waiting you know, to get yelled at because that's what I was expecting. And then my foster dad came in and grabbed me by my hair and dragged me out of the bed, sat me down into the kitchen table and like slammed the table and said, why are you talking smack? You know, you know, I told you not to be talking, you know, shit about us and whatever else. And so everything that you confide in this person was revealed to the foster parents. Yeah, I, I feel that she betrayed me because she went directly to the to my foster parents and I, there was no intervention with the social workers after this occurred. Like I was just trapped again. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that this woman would help me cause she made me feel safe, but she just handed me back over. Oh yeah. Um, were you angry at her for, for betraying you or, or is it just more disappointment, sad 
and fear? Um, I guess I was more sad. Like I wasn't disappointed at that time. I wasn't really, you know, expecting. I was just more sad that I thought that she would protect me, you know? Yeah, yeah that you could trust her. That I could trust her, exactly. Um, and, then I, and then I couldn't. And then she basically just handed me right back over to my abusers. So that just kind of made me scared to ever say anything to anyone because I just knew that, like, in this moment, if I did, I'm just going to be right back here and there was no point. All all I did was Mm. just kind of add more abuse onto my plate by doing so, you know? Yeah, yeah. At 14, I ran away again. This time I was missing, or AWOL, however you want to call it, for two weeks. I saw an opportunity and I took advantage of that. So I was having a sleepover at one of my friends. And this is at a point where, I mean, my, my foster parent was very invasive. Like my cell phone was encrypted, had access to my phone calls, text messages. However he did it, I'm not quite sure. But it was an unhealthy addiction to me <clears throat> yeah. regarding anything. And so I just, I felt like I needed to escape. And so I did that night. I remember like splitting my SIM card because I was just so, so paranoid that he could still locate me with this SIM card. I I put my bike in another lot. I even changed my sweater. I was where asked my friend to wear her clothes. This is like out of the movies. Yeah. Yeah, And and then it was getting really late and I was like, I don't want to be on the sidewalks or the streets. And so I found a garden. So I mean, thank you to whoever's lovely soft garden that was. But I, <laughs> I laid my bed there for a couple hours. And I remember actually, you know, looking up at the stars during this night. And I, I saw a shooting star. And I know this is for some, like, just whatever uh, superstitions. But I saw the shooting star. And I remember making a wish that I would be safe on this journey. Because I was by myself and very young. Yeah. And so sunrise came about... I was walking on all of the outskirts of the city because I was trying to avoid all of the main areas. I had some money, luckily, because I worked at a very young age. Like I remember starting like at Canada Post at 12 years old. At 13, I got my first job at the community skating rink, like as a canteen girl, selling yeah. chips and whatever. And then as soon as I got my babysitter's certificate, I got my first babysitting job. And so that's where I made the bulk of my money. So I remember oh. going to Superstore. I, I went to the bathroom, cleaned myself up, bought some new clothes, and then I was ready to go out on my little journey. <laughs> I ended up in the North End, and there was a couple of young girls that saw me, and they said, like, hey, what are you doing walking around by yourself? And why are you wearing that color? Uh, I was wearing, like, a red bag. And they told me, you know, I, I'm crazy for wearing this color in the area that I was in. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I was just so sheltered. They took me under their wing. We went shelter hopping. <laughs> wow. You know, like a lot of them are like um, time-based, like time-limited. So you can only stay there for 24 hours, 48 hours, whatever. And then I mm-hmm. ended up into Nadinaway, which is a little bit of a more long-term shelter. And uh, that's where I got picked up again by my foster parents. Was that the they longest? Got... Oh, sorry. That Jack. was the Go longest ahead. I was gone, yeah. 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 Did uh, your foster parents, did they call around to the shelters and looking uh, for you? Is that I how they found you? I don't know how that came about, but I know that I had a whole list of like 50 students that I went to class with. And, you know, back in the day, we didn't, we just had like their numbers in a little book. And then we'd be like, oh, let's call, like whatever. Like, you know, we just had a page of our, our contacts. So they yeah. had called everybody on my, on my contact list. They found it in my room, called everybody to see if anybody had seen me heard from me and so this is like right before high school right so when I returned to this home I had to go to high school with all of this and my foster brothers who so in the home it was three of the biological children and then three foster kids so it was a big household but the the boys one was a year older and another one was a year younger and so they spread rumors about me about how I was in jail and foster kid and whatever else. So it just really set up a bad start to high school. So oh, yeah, that was fun. High school is such a delicate time for a child too, because you you got hormones and you gotta live up to this peer pressure. And if you're not cool, you don't fit in. 
and like there's just so much pressure on teenagers especially nowadays but back then too when you go to school knowing that people are talking about you and and thinking this way about you it just makes it so much harder to get through the day even just being indigenous that was a whole nother realm of segregation I felt in high school as well so I had this I had this story going into it and then I had for example I wasn't allowed to hang out with certain kids who told me as we grew older it was because their parents didn't trust me because I was native that I would steal or whatever else that I wasn't allowed to hang around because I'm a bad influence but I wasn't because I played sports and I did good in school but people just have these assumptions based on the color of my skin and wouldn't allow their kids to hang out with me even if that weren't the case like my my foster parents in this one home just deliberately went out of their way to isolate me from all my peers. I I feel that I didn't really have social skills to even associate with my peers. It was just this big ordeal just to be able to say, hey, can I go to the mall? Like, why do you want to go there? Okay, well, if they did agree to to allow me to go to the mall, I'd have to go to the nearest one. I can't go to the the biggest one because I have to stay within the sector. Yeah, this jurisdiction. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess having friends over would be out of the question oh yeah no I mean like when I was older I I did have one close friend who did come over frequently you know she was lured by my foster parents and that really angered me at that time because I I was like I thought you were coming here to hang out with me and then you end up hanging out with my with my foster dad oh Uh, my god that kind of yeah but anyways that's not our that's not the point of this yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah. I I just I, I kept busy with sports. What was your favorite sport? Volleyball. Nice. <laughs> yeah, you're a superstar. I know you are. You just had a tournament. Yeah, we placed us second, but we yeah. have another one coming up. So hopefully we're gonna knock the same team that beat us in the final this time around. Yeah. Revenge. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like things weren't good at home is the bottom line in this situation. But I found my peace by going out to my sporting events because that was the only place that I could block out everything else that was going and just focus on what I had to do in that moment. And I and I knew that if I practiced enough that I can continue to do this for a very long time. Some kids they start out in the sports and they get to high school and they don't want to do it again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And as you progress, like you need to gain these skills. So, so at an early age, I was like, if I do this, I can do this for a very long time. And that would give me a lot of time away from home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And a good outlet. Yeah. Exactly. A, good re- outlet. a good reprieve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then so at 17, I finally was removed from this home for good. I was okay. in the basement playing xbox i was a big gamer back in the day because you know i was <laughs> rarely rarely allowed to leave the house unless it was for sport or work so i played xbox uh, on my free time call of duty you know yeah <laughs> just kidding but um anyways so i had my friend on my headset like you can like talk online and things like that and my foster mom comes downstairs and she's yelling at me that i didn't clean the bathroom to her likeness. And so I said, I did it three times. Like, I don't know what else you want me to do. She smacks the headset off of my head and she's like, go clean it like right now. And, and at this time, like, I'm really, really embarrassed because I had my friend on the other end and he, he must've heard the the thing get knocked off of my head. And so I got up and I pushed my, my foster mom out of my bubble. Like I didn't do it to hurt her. I did it to get her away from me and said, don't ever touch me again. And I ran upstairs. So that was on like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, I had a doctor's appointment. So I went to that. And then I called one of my cousins and I said, look, I need your help. I can't go back to this home. I don't know what what else to do. Like I've tried to contact my workers. I tried, I tried so many times. I need your help, please. And so she was also in foster care. So her foster mom got involved and they asked to hear my story, what was going on. And so I wrote everything down and that family said, don't worry, you won't be going back there. We'll make sure of it. So they advocated for me not to return to that home. And then funny enough is that all throughout my childhood in that home, I always witnessed my foster dad beat my foster mom, like to the point of bruises. 
sometimes there would be a couple of days where all of us kids, like even their own kids, we'd all have to be locked away in our bedrooms because we're so scared because these two are fighting all day, every day um, oh or whatever their problems were. And then so the workers came back to me saying they had pictures of bruises that I had beat my foster mom up. And I was like, that is so untrue. Like, all I did was shove her. Like, what bruises are you talking about? Like, they didn't show me, obviously, but I was like thinking in my head, I'm like, you know, the only thing that I can think of of how you got bruises is that maybe your husband beat you because now I escaped and what's going to happen? Am I going to share? How much am I going to share? And then so I lived with my cousin for about a couple of months until they figured out where I would live for the final year of my permanent wardness. I don't know how to say that, but um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so the foster mom of, uh, of that family, she had two children, a son and a daughter, and so they gave me the option: like, do you want to go to this school and stay with the daughter in this area, or do you want to stay with the son and his wife in this area and go to this school? So ultimately, I was deciding between two high schools, and I picked the high school where I thought that I would have the most opportunity to excel in volleyball. That was what I needed in the moment. Like, I don't have bad memories of that home. Also, I don't have significant memories either. Like, it was only for a short period of time. I didn't really experience the type of bond to really have a memorable experience, if that makes sense. Yeah. And for that last year, was it something like, you know, the countdown to Christmas? Were you Xing off the days until you were out of the system? Or was it not even really in your mind you're just going on your day-to-day business I think I was just going on my day-to-day because (laughs) they were never really involved to begin with so like how could I really count the days I mean count the days to to what to go see my mother whenever I would like yeah I don't even think that that was something that I was in my mind I think that I was I I don't even know I just think that it everything just kind of was sprung upon me so quickly that I didn't really have time to acknowledge what was happening because until after it happened, obviously, like I didn't realize that I'd be completely on my own with no adult to really yeah. guide me. Yeah. And so my last high school year, like grade 12 was in the greatest. I think that I, I became very depressed at this time. Like, I guess everything was coming back to me about everything that had happened in my previous home. And you know, but I still played volleyball and many other sports. Like I did track, try out for the basketball team just for the glory of making the team. But I <laughs> was so involved in volleyball that I never actually played basketball. But mm-hmm. um, badminton, you know, the whole school, all of it. So graduation came around. That was great. I had my mom there and that was really nice that she showed up. She almost didn't. I think that maybe sometimes when you're isolated in a remote community, it's hard for you to venture out beyond your comfort zone into society that aggregated you for, I mean, I don't mean to laugh, but for a majority of your life, it's hard for somebody to really want to engage in those kind of events. Yeah. But she yeah. made it. So that was nice. One of my friends from high school, she said that she was going to university and she had this volleyball tryout. So she asked if I can go with her to support her. So I was like, yeah, volleyball. Sure. Why not? Let's go. And uh, so I arrived, I played, and I must have played very well because the coach asked me to step aside and asked if I'd be willing to play on the team with the athletic scholarship. Wow. So I said, I was like, well, you know, I I had no intention to go to university. I didn't really do well this past year, but I I loved volleyball so much. I was like, yeah, let's do it. So this was like end of June. They fast-tracked my application and got me in for that September my God, I think volleyball might be one of like the most important things you could have done. It seems like it opened up some doors for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was just like college level. I mean, the Manitoba college level, like CIS is the top one that's all across Canada. I'm too short for the, for the big guns. <laughs> <laughs> I moved into the dorm. So at this point, I mean, it looks like that I was capable and independent to be on my own. But I think that I was, but I wasn't capable to fully guide myself to where I needed to be. Like I still needed an adult present, someone to go to if I had questions or concerns, and I didn't have that. I became even more depressed. I started drinking. Then I didn't go to class. And then my, my coach, she, she suspended me from one of the games, saying that I need to attend class if I want to play. 
And then, so that's kind of, you know, aggravated me because like, I don't even want to be in school. I just, I just want to play sport. I yeah. dropped out. I quit the team. This was shortly right after they had written this big article about being rookie of the year. Like things were good and they could have been, but I just fell short to being lonely. Yeah. Volleyball seems like it was your rock all through your life. It seems like it was your safe space, something that you thrived off of and something that you truly loved. It must have been just devastating when you realized that you're losing this, maybe not because of the school part, but because of the sport, your love for the sport and what it's basically meant to you for your duration of your life. Yeah, it was an outlet. I mean, like you're talking to a kid that in grade seven, you know, you do your, your underhand serves and you watch the older girls, they're doing overhand serves. And Mm -hmm. so I remember trying it and I failed miserably. And then, so that summer I I tied an extension cord from the deck to a tree in my yard. And I practiced every day for the two months all summer. And so when I came back to school in grade eight, I was the only girl that could overhand serve. And I was a top server. Oh, that's awesome though. It's crazy the work you'll put in when it's something that you love doing. Exactly. And then I was, you know, released from foster care completely. I quit university. I ended up unemployed and homeless. And then um, I was couch surfing with some friends. There was a couple of us that decided to get like our own place together, which was uh, not a very good idea. Things fell through. I mean, some people were unreliable. (laughs) And then I was thinking, I was like, man, like, what can I do? Like, I'm good with kids, but I can't seem to ever get a job. I kind of associate this with prejudice or even racism because I, I would have phone calls with the managers or interviewers and things would go really well. Because like when you hear my name, Darlene, like, let's be real here. Like, what do you associate with that name? Like, do you think it's a middle-aged white woman? And then I would show up being Indigenous and then immediately it's like, oh, we're, we're actually not hiring anymore. And I would experience that with like rental properties too. Like on the phone, it's super great. I go to the unit and like, oh, you know, it's, it's actually just taken now, you know? And like, yeah, I, I can't fully validate this is true, but I, but with my feelings, this is how it was for me. Once yeah. it happens so many times, you can't help but think, hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So I took this course called Family Studies in high school. With that, they teach us like child development and they give us a little fake baby, all of that Uh, fun stuff. I did that. And (laughs) And it cries too, right? Yeah. Did you have the one where you have to like turn the key till the baby stopped crying? So in the middle of the night, it would just start crying randomly and I'd have to get up and put this key in the baby's back and keep it turned until the baby stopped crying. But the key had like this elastic kind of rope on it. So I put the key in the back and wrapped that rope around the baby and then hooked it on its thumb. So it just kept the key turned. So I didn't actually have to hold it. And and then, yeah, (laughs) so I kind of cheated my way through it. But, you know, I got a perfect score. Sorry, Darlene. Well, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I digress. Go ahead, Darlene. You you, you were taking care of the baby. (laughs) So through this course, I learned about this word called an au pair. And so that's a live-in nanny. So I was like, oh, yes. That would be so fun because you can be an au pair all over the world. So I went online and I made a profile and I I found a family in British Columbia. Then I moved out there for three years. Oh, wow. I had a home. I got to be with a family. So it was pretty great. And then I decided to become independent again on my own and got my own apartment, my own job. That was separate from being an end. And then I tried to go back to university and my funding declined me for that and so I I just reverted back into this like self-sabotage kind of behavior like I'll show you I'll hurt me out of frustration Mm. and so I quit everything and I back to Winnipeg oh wow and of course I returned with no job yeah you showed them yeah (laughs) but it's so crazy how people will do that I mean I've been guilty of it myself it's Me like, too. Okay, well, Mark, what did you do that for? Now you're you're no better than where you were. Yeah. yeah. How did you you went from BC all the way back to Winnipeg? What by by bus? Yeah, it was the cheapest way because yeah. I had a couple oh, bins of clothes. Yeah, it was pretty bad. I was sitting in the back, and I think it was right above the engine, and and it was just happened to be the one row without the air conditioning. 
And so I remember walking to the front of the bus because there was like an empty seat there and the air conditioning, obviously. So I just went there to sit down for just like five minutes. Like I'm literally drenched. I'm so hot. And then uh, and then the bus driver stops the bus abruptly in the middle of the highway. This is at nighttime. It's like probably midnight. He flips all the lights on and he yelled at me like, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm just like cooling down. He's like, get back to your seat right now. And he's like yelling at me. And I was like, oh my goodness. And then he said to me, like, if you do this again, you're going to be off where you are. <laughs> like, Jesus. Like, off, like, I know. <laughs> Fuck Greyhound anyway. Yeah. I, I've despised every single bus ride I've had to take. No, I've had my bus driver say, can you please not cough so loudly? I'm like, what? <laughs> I can't really <laughs> cough and change my volume. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, yeah, here I keep taking this off track. No worries. So I, I didn't have any family in the city, so I had to go back to the community to go live with my mother. But she didn't have her own house in the community. So we had to live with my grandma and my uncles. But my grandma, she also suffers with uh, uh, alcohol addictions. When she would get into one of her, I guess you'd call it phases, she would kick me and my mother out of the house quite frequently actually so finally one of my uncles he had this shed <laughs> this is like eight by eight shed outside on the grass and he said that my mom can have it and then my mom said that I can stay in there if I want it like I kept getting kicked out from my grandma's house <laughs> I know it sounds like pathetic but I patched up the walls I added a tile in my little tiny room I mean everyone would make fun of me saying like oh you're going to your tiny house I just had a little padlock on it and made it a home for about a year. But it was yours, you know? Yeah, no way to cook food. I would go to different people's houses to eat and use the bathroom to shower. And then I would just have my bed in the shed. But at least you had a roof over your head, though. Yeah, exactly. That's the problem came around to springtime because the shed is not insulated. And I had heaters in there all winter. Mold formed on the walls. Oh, because of the condensation. Yeah, well, I didn't even know any of that at this time. But one of my, I guess now I call her like my, my mentor and elder, she came to check on me and she said, like, there's mold on the wall. Like, what are you doing with that? And I said, well, I know, don't worry about it. I, I just wipe it down every morning. It's okay. It's not a big deal. Like, that's not good for your health. No, no, no. This is not good. And then so she offered me a place to stay and employment. And I guess she kind of helped me redirect my vision for myself because one of the things that you had mentioned about, you know, giving up and some do and and I did, I did give up because that's where I ended up because I wanted to give up on everything and my, my dreams for school were shot down. I just felt like I had nothing else to live for. And so like I, what's the point? Exactly. Right. I may as well just succumb into the stereotype that everyone thinks that I am. So that changed. You know, I just, it was kind of just like a little light flicked and it was like, I was so negative with everything in my life. And that's kind of just how like everything was invited into my life. All of this negative thoughts and feelings and events and it just kept piling on and on. And so one day I was like, hey, if I want a positive outcome, I need to be positive to make that happen. Like I can't be fighting negative with positive because we all know how that works, right? Yes. Yep. Work. yes. You know, I made enough money to buy my first vehicle. At how old was I? Like 20, 20, 24, 25? I can't even remember. Went back to university. I lived on campus and just really started to get my life back together. Just with the simple switch of your mind from negative to positivity. And it was the help with your mentor that made you realize you can do this? That I was worth it that I wasn't who I really thought that I was. Like I just lost, I lost sight of who I was for that moment mm -hmm. in that time. And she kind of helped me to find that light again. Cause you know, it was so dark at this time that I, that I couldn't really see beyond, you know, like yeah. the horse with the, those little blinds. That's how I saw my life. Like I just, I couldn't see anything except for what was in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. Got the blinders yeah. on. Exactly. Yeah. How long have you been uh, in contact with your mentor? So she has fostered my other siblings for a majority of their lives and some of them for the entirety of their lives. So 
when I returned back to the community and that's when uh, she became a part of my life. You know, being in the community, she recognized me being the eldest of all of my siblings and this kind of adopted me as her own. Oh, that's awesome. And I mean, for yourself, being through this system and going through everything that you went through, how can the system get better? How can less people go through the shit that you've had to claw through? Well, I guess I, I want to share something that I read the other day about a seed. Like a seed is a seed where it is planted that will dictate how it grows. Like, for example, an oak seed. That oak tree has the capability to become the strongest tree in the forest. But if you put the seed in a tiny pot without sun or water, it won't grow into what it was intended to be. Mm-hmm. So that kind of the way that I see that is that there are missing aspects of nourishment to help a child grow. And that's what we need to become aware of and develop those services to address. Yeah, absolutely. My vision is that hopefully I can influence a couple youth to be proud of who they are and learn the ways to be self-sufficient and realize their potentials in life. And then maybe those few individuals can join me and then repeat that cycle and help do the same and so forth. And then to the point that there be a community of us that try to work together to help change this. Because so much of our policy these days is developed by people that didn't experience what we're experienced. And so how can you try to create a system without really knowing what it's like to be in it? Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. They have no idea 90% of the time what they're talking about. And they try to implement things that have failed over the years. And it's like, they don't realize this just fails. It sets people up for failure. Something has to change. There has to be a different approach to this. And I think that is a fantastic idea of mentoring others so they can continue that cycle to mentor others. It's tough to and, do and, when you're alone, but if you build a community, like, yeah, wow. knowledge is power. Knowledge yeah. is power. Exactly. And you know, one of our indigenous teachings is that you share the knowledge that you're given or that you learn. And that is the whole point of learning that knowledge is so that you can carry it on to another person that reciprocity pay it forward when you were growing up did your culture mean anything to you was it any guiding principle from being indigenous that gave you strength or was it later in life when you learned more about your culture it's only been actually as of recently that i've been more connected to my culture growing up yeah. in my foster homes i was always ridiculed for being native, you know, I wasn't allowed to hang out with the other native kids. I'd be made fun of that I wanted to spend time with my siblings. My brother and I used to be best friends and my foster parent would make such negative comments towards my brother and make me feel ashamed to hang around him. And so that kind of really isolated myself again because I couldn't talk to my, my best friend who I'd grown up with here and there and comments like, oh, you're just like your mother if I was native or... <laughs> And I just kind of, I always had this, like, this negativity towards being Native. Like, I wasn't proud of it because I had been treated so negatively because of it. But as of late, I I am proud to be who I am. And if somebody isn't open-minded about it, then that's that's their issue. I can't change that. But, like, you know, it kind of reminds me of that saying, like, I can't change people's actions, but I can change my reaction to it. Right. And, like, as for my culture and language my first language was Ojibwe as a child oh really and being in the community that's all my mom spoke and that's all my grandma spoke that's actually a majority of the language that everybody speaks and then so you know when you're apprehended and you're put into a home with white English speakers you don't get to speak your language you got to learn a whole new language and then you go back to the community when you're reunified and then again you're kind of feeling isolated as well because now you can't speak your language you're in a community yeah. of people that only speak that language, right? Yeah. Yeah. How long did it take you to to relearn Ojibwe? I, I haven't relearned it. I only recently learned how to say my spirit name in my language. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. But it's all my goal. It's all my goal. It is? I know you're going to do it. Yeah, you sound yes. pretty determined. Even though I was forced to conform 
deep within me, I still had such a strong tie to my culture. For example, one of my personality traits of like being courageous, and I think that's something that I had carried through all of my childhood that has really saved me. And I think that that's part of my culture is like, I don't, I can't explain it. It's like a spiritual level of like courage to stand up and to continue fighting and to push through, like even, even if I'm scared, even if yeah. I'm in the dark, even if I don't want to go, like, what if I fail? What if I'm not good enough? Just feeling it within you that your ancestors are with you. You just gotta, you gotta listen for them. And I sound like yeah. a crazy person, baby, but. Uh... No, not at all. Not whatsoever. Cause I know exactly what you mean. These experiences that I share are events and that I'm no longer hurt by what has happened. These experiences, they don't, they don't define me. They're remnants of what shaped who I am today. I, I come to re realize that I cannot rewrite my past life, but I can help pave a way for other youth who are currently experiencing this and to advocate for them to speak up. And if they can't, then let me help. Diamonds are made from pressure and you've gone through a lot of pressure in your yes. life. What was it? It's It's been fairly recently that the government announced $20 billion is dedicate, being dedicated to a long-term reform in the child welfare system. We know what's not working, Darlene. What do you think will, besides mentoring, is there any types of program or infrastructure that you'd like to see in communities across, essentially across North America, pretty much? Because yeah. it's not just isolated to Canada. It's in the States as well. Yeah, I mean, how can you get the most bang for your buck with $20 billion with such a huge problem? Well, I'm just going to be blatantly honest here. You need, to, you need to stop with this apprehension immediately. I just find that it's always so disorganized. Like, oh, no, we need to save this child. Let's apprehend them from the home and then drop them off at this location. And then you, and then you neglect them for however long until, you know, you got to do your case notes. And then you come up and check up on them. And the kid's traumatized, one, from being removed. And then two, re-traumatize because you abandoned them again. And so yeah. what I what I really hope to see is that this money will be utilized to provide services and programs for more in-home and cultural revitalization and different programs that are more of working together as a community instead of separating everybody into their own different columns and say, okay, parent is here in the community, child is here, wherever, and then the social worker is wherever else. And it's just so distinctly segregated you know mm -hmm. when, it, yep. when in actuality they need to be more connected together instead of separating everybody for example my relationship with my mother is like very important to me as an adult I see my mother now which is very different than as a child because there's a lot more understanding and empathy and again with tying into that seed you know she's a seed in her environment if you want to flip the perspective in her point of view, you know, you see your children being raised by someone other than you across the street. Like, let's say your kids are still in the community and then you see them being raised by somebody else. Like, you're hurt. Like, why, why can't they just give you supports and assistance and tools and skills to be able to watch your own kids rather than apprehending and then reinstilling your own trauma? And it's just this vicious cycle. And, and instead of, like, helping the parents or... I don't know. It's hard to say. I think that this immediate apprehension is more damaging to a child than providing tools and resources for the entire family for them to thrive rather than separating them all. Because it just kind of brings it back to, you know, residential schools. Take the child away from the parent and you're just creating a whole new system of trauma. Yeah. Yep. That is freaking 100% correct. It's just... That one action has a snowball effect of repercussions throughout the rest of everybody that knows that person's life, pretty much. Anybody who has that person in their family, there's just a long chain reaction of repercussion that comes from apprehension. And it, it'll carry on with that child and that child's immediate family for the rest of their lives. Exactly. Really, though, are these outfits and like places that are apprehending, like, are they under the impression that we are doing the best thing possible for the child by 
taking this child out of this situation. Sure, we put this child in this house or this new home, but do they think like, okay, we've done our part. We've just separated. We took the kid from the bad situation. So job well done. Funny that you mentioned that the term for the best interests of the child, because in my opinion and in my experience and through other people's experience, a common theme I find is that it's never in the best interest of the child. Mm. I mean, in the best interest of your own internal morals that, oh, this child needs to be saved? Or is it that you need to take the child away from these parents because they're not providing the care that you think that is acceptable? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And instead of educating, education goes so far. It goes so far. And even me growing up uh, in a small town, like there was no no indigenous studies or any kind of history on on any of the subject growing up through school. It's, it just, it was nowhere in the curriculum that like, Hey, like if say a kid like me and all my friends are growing up and actually like learning rather than like seeing someone that's different than you and either fearing or if people were more educated growing up about these races and and the histories and things like how the system works for children who don't have home. I don't know. I went through school, I guess, with blinders. I didn't know any of this stuff was even happening in the world as a kid. Yeah, it brings me to that concept of like in one of my books I read, it was talking about how in the child welfare system, protection is first as opposed to prevention. And so why that? Why aren't yeah. we putting preventative measures prior to apprehension? Like, wouldn't you think that you would want to provide an opportunity for these individuals to learn rather than instill more drama? I don't know. Yeah. But Yeah. Why not be proactive instead of having a reactive? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I could sit here asking you questions for another two hours, Darlene, but we have been on for an hour and a half so far. Oh, flew by. It did. Is, is there anything that you want to leave with us for our listeners to think over any way that they can help? What would be the best step for people to either find out more about what they can do to help? Or is there any resource that they should be looking into? I'm not quite sure of any resources, but I think just having an an awareness of understanding that these children in care are going through so much more than what's on the exterior. And, you know, to not encourage these segregation behaviors to make these children feel more of an outcast than they may already feel. To teach your kids that bullying is not okay to not pick on the kids with the less school clothes, things like that. For me, it seems simple, but um, for some, it's not. Not to pick on the kid with the long hair, with the braids, you know, just anything like that. Like, that can go for all cultures. Just teach to be kind to one another and to understand that there's more to the book than just the cover. Yeah, absolutely. And if there is any foster parents listening... Remember Darlene's story. Don't ever let any child that's in your care not feel what it's like to have a hug, to to question if they're loved, to wonder what their place in this world is. As a foster parent, it's your place to make the child feel safe and to feel loved. It's part of the duty that, that you signed on for. Don't ever forget Darlene's story and that this is just one voice amongst million others and a million other stories just like this. Darlene, we want to thank you so much for coming on tonight. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, I mean, it feels really amazing to have somebody ask me my story because there's so many cycles of people in my life that have come and gone, come and gone. And it's really nice to be able to have someone ask me from the beginning to now. Thank you. And we barely even scratched the surface. There's so much more conversation that we can get into. So we're going to have you back on sometime again. So thank you so much for your time, Darlene. And we really appreciate everything that you shared with us today. And best of luck in the upcoming tournament. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, this has been the Broken Home Podcast. 
episode 12. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Have a great week.